everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshida is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of Children's Programs for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. And we're partnering with Braille Institute Child Development Services for this monthly telephone series. Each teleconference, as Dr. Bill said, about 30 to 45 minutes, and we will open it up for questions at the end. And just uh, just for information, the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Thank you all, and thank you, Dr. Bill. Well, thank you very much, Sue, and I appreciate all the work that you and Braille Institute do in putting these programs on. And most importantly, we really thank all of you who listen to these. Mm -hmm. Uh, These particular lectures are available on podcasts for you, and it's really remarkable of how many people listen to these podcasts because we do receive email messages and questions regarding the topics that we talk about. I also want to thank Mr. Joe Yurka from Airs LA, who is recording this, and this will be available later this week at www.airsla.org. That's www.airsla.org. And this evening, we're going to be talking about what is a developmental functional low vision examination. Now, one of the things that many parents often ask is, What is the difference between the type of examination that is performed at the Center for the Partially Sighted by our low vision optometrist and those examinations that are performed by general ophthalmologists? Well, that's a really very, very good question because in the eyes of most people, we would often think that an eye examination is an eye examination. And many people don't even quite understand what is the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. Well, the first thing is that most children who are born who do have eye problems are often going to be referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist at the hospital. Now, an ophthalmologist is a physician who specializes in diagnosing and performing surgery to treat different types of eye diseases. These ophthalmologists, they undergo four years of medical school, followed by a ophthalmology program, which is generally three years, and then they may then go on to perform a residency and or a fellowship, depending on how much specialization that they receive. On the other hand, an optometrist is a primary care eye doctor. And the optometrist's job is to examine the eyes to determine if there is any eye disease. And the optometrist also will perform different types of tests to measure how much vision that a child or an adult has, as well as what types of treatments may be beneficial. Now, optometrists, they go to four years of optometry school And then many will then go on to perform a residency or a fellowship. Now, in the field of optometry, 
many optometrists will do a residency in the area of low vision. And others may do a residency in the area of pediatrics. And others may do a fellowship where they're getting additional training so that they could do examinations on children who do have low vision. So overall, the two eye doctors really do perform two different types of things. Now, when a child has been born with an eye condition and the doctors have been able to identify this at birth, the ophthalmologist is brought in to examine the eyes and to diagnose what is the problem. In some cases, it might be that the retina, the inner tissue inside the eye that receives light and converts it into electrical signals that are sent to the brain, many times the retina may be damaged. It could be torn or there could be a hemorrhage, and the ophthalmologist will then treat it. They could perform surgery so that the retina no longer has a tear in it, or they may perform another type of a treatment so that the blood vessels are no longer bleeding in the eye. When these particular surgeries are completed, the ophthalmologist will follow the child generally the day after surgery and then usually one week after and two weeks and three weeks. But what one doesn't often understand is that the ophthalmologists who evaluate these children in the hospital, they do not necessarily measure all of the levels of vision that the child has. So when these children are discharged from the hospital, the parents really don't quite yet know what their child is able to see. They don't know if their child is totally blind or if the child has normal vision. Another thing is that most parents, they're not aware of the fact that vision is a learned and developed skill. And the amount of vision that a child has, it varies at different stages of life. So, for example, a newborn child, their eyes could usually only focus at a distance of 8 to 16 inches away. They can't focus further very well. And the newborn's eyes can only see black and white. And if the newborn's eyes are most interested in looking at round, circular objects about the diameter of a nickel or a quarter. And so at that age of one month, these children do not see across the room, and they do not see colors. And you might have other toys that you put around the room, but the child won't even look at it. And that is because the visual system, including the eyes and the brain, have not developed to a level that they can see these things. So as developmental optometrists, what we do is that we perform a specialized examination to determine how much vision does the child have. And when we identify what are the child's visual strengths and weaknesses, we then can prescribe specific games and toys and activities that parents could do at home with their child, which will stimulate the development of vision. And were these kids who do have vision problems at birth, by performing this type of visual stimulation, we know we can promote the development of vision. One of the things that's very, very exciting about this field 
is that recently we now know that the number one cause of vision impairment of children is a disease that is called cortical vision impairment. And this is when the visual centers of the brain do not process visual information normally. The main reason why the brain has these problems with processing visual information is that these are children who for some reason did not receive enough oxygen. Maybe that the child wasn't breathing properly at birth. Maybe that the child developed a hemorrhage in the brain at birth. Other times a child may swallow merconium. Other times a child might have a seizure. But all of these situations, they do affect how the brain is going to receive oxygen. And if the brain doesn't receive normal oxygen, the child has very low vision. But in a recent study that was published by Christine Roman, her particular study showed that by providing children with visual stimulation activities, that their vision can develop. And we find this to be the same case as when children have other types of eye problems where they're born with cataracts or they have glaucoma or they have a retinal detachment. These activities can be performed and it is so critical that during the first three years of life that these visual stimulation activities are performed to develop higher levels of vision. And this why we say it is so, so important that all of these kids receive the services of a teacher for the visually impaired because a teacher for the visually impaired is often the one who is teaching the parents how to do these activities. And as eye doctors, this is what we do as well. In addition to identifying how well the child is able to see, we create a program of exercises and ways to stimulate the use of vision. We have handouts. What are toys that parents can get at the 99-cent store or that they can make at home for low cost that will stimulate the child's vision? We have a handout that we provide to parents and this is how you decorate your child's room or your living area or the play area so that your child could see better and use vision. And then we have a list of different activities and toys and games that the child and the parents can play, which would also stimulate vision. So the first thing in terms of the functional vision assessment is that we will then perform a case history. Now, the case history is something that all of you can investigate as well, and you could find different types of information. The reason that this information is very important is because it often gives us the information that helps us to understand why the child isn't seeing well. So one of the first things that we want to ask is about the prenatal history. Before the child was born, was there any involvement with drug abuse, alcohol abuse, or was mom and dad in a car accident, and did the baby suffer possibly from trauma during that car accident? It's very important to know if something happened before the child was born because these types of situations often affect the development of the visual centers of the brain. When we do identify a problem to the visual centers of the brain, 
we know specifically what kinds of exercises and visual stimulation activities to recommend. We then want to ask, how was the delivery? How many weeks gestation was it when the child was born? You should keep in mind that if the child was born before 32 weeks gestation, that this child is at risk of having a condition that's called retinopathy of prematurity. Now, if a child is born before 32 weeks of gestation, we know that the blood vessels that supply blood to the retina, those blood vessels are not fully developed. They did not extend all the way out to the edges of the retina, so there's a very high chance that the edges of the retina do not have the normal blood vessels, and as a result, those regions of the retina do not function normally. We also know that if a child is born with a birth weight of less than 1,500 grams, that child is also at risk of having retinopathy of prematurity. So if a child is born before 32 weeks gestation or that the child was a very low birth weight, we then want these children to be examined by a retinal ophthalmologist. And that retinal ophthalmologist would do a special examination of the retina to make certain that there are no problems with a torn retina or a detached retina or that there's no bleeding in the retina. Now, what happens with these kids who are born before 32 weeks or of low birth weight, if they have this condition called retinopathy of prematurity, very often these blood vessels tend to leak. And when the blood vessels leak, it releases scar tissue. And the scar tissue, it looks something like cotton, and it will grab onto the retina, and it will pull the retina to tear it. Or it could pull the entire retina to detach the entire retina, and that could cause a person to become totally blind. When a person does have retinopathy of prematurity, then the surgeon will then be able to perform surgery to repair the retina. And if this is something that's identified very quickly, then this could be a very, very successful treatment. Another particular type of condition that we want to ask the parents about the birth of the child is, were there any complications at birth? At birth, did this child have any problems with breathing? where maybe the child wasn't breathing, the child swallowed merconium, the child was having seizures, because those particular types of complications are strong indicators that there might be cortical vision impairment. Again, this is the leading cause of vision impairment among children. Why is it important that we understand these things? Well, for one thing, is that the children who have cortical vision impairment these children often do not have central vision. So they may not make eye contact with mom or dad. And you might hold a toy in front of them, and they may not look at it. But these kids often are able to see certain types of toys and stimuli better. 
So, for example, the kids with cortical vision impairment often see moving objects, but they cannot see non-moving objects. So we'll tell parents, move your head from side to side, and that will often grasp the attention of your child. They often will see things better if you are presenting the toys or your face in the child's peripheral vision. And that's because they have better peripheral vision than central vision. We also know that many times that they like the color red. Red and white patterns and black and white patterns are often very, very visually stimulating for them. We often can use different applications on the iPad, and these kids really enjoy looking at it, and that will then stimulate the visual centers of their brain. So we want to look for those types of clues. In contrast, the kids who were born premature and have retinopathy of prematurity, they usually have better central vision. So if you are directly in front of them, they see better than the things that are on their sides. If you present things within their arms reach and closer, they often see it better because children with retinopathy of prematurity often are nearsighted, and they see things much better if it's closer. And these kids also often see things better if we increase the illumination. So you could see how by gathering this information about the prenatal history and the birth history, it gives you a lot of information before you have even evaluated the child. Another thing that we often do ask is, do parents notice that the child's eyes shake from side to side? That is something that is called nystagmus. If a child is born with nystagmus, many times the ophthalmologist is called in to examine the child. And the ophthalmologist will often diagnose a condition that is called optic nerve hypoplasia. And this is one of the fastest new cases of vision impairment among children. And this is where the bundle of nerves that connect the eye to the brain, they did not develop fully. And when there's not the normal number of fibers that connect the eye to the brain, these kids do not have normal vision, and they usually will have the nystagmus, the shaking of the eyes. Now, if you do ask or you do find that the child does have optic nerve hypoplasia, it's also very important to ask if the child has been examined by an endocrinologist. The reason for this is many children with optic nerve hypoplasia have hormonal deficiencies. Many times they need growth hormones. Other times they need other types of hormones. Other kids may have insatiable thirst where they drink so much water that they're always urinating and people often think that maybe this child has type 1 diabetes when in fact it is a hormonal problem. So these kids need to be seen by an endocrinologist and when they often are given the correct medications or hormones, it often helps them to feel much better and we see that their development comes along much better as well. Another thing that you want to then do is to ask questions about what is the child able to do now? In other words, is their overall general development on target? We may ask, 
is that child able to sit independently? We often see that many children are able to sit by the age of six months. Does your child roll or is your child beginning to crawl? We want to find out if at nine months, if the child is able to perform any of these gross motor tasks. Does your child stand or is your child beginning to walk? And we want to find out, are they able to do that around 12 months? Now, we find that many children, many children with low vision, they are two to three times delayed in reaching these developmental milestones. And we want to explain to parents that this is very, very common because the visual system sends information to the motor system that helps kids to learn to orient themselves or to keep their balance. You know, many of you could even do this. You could try to stand on one foot with your eyes open and then try to stand on the same foot with your eyes closed. You will notice that when you have eliminated a lot of that visual input by closing your eyes, you would lose your balance. And this is why a lot of kids, they don't want to get into the standing position or the crawling position because they feel as though they're going to lose their balance and they would rather lie flat on their back or flat on their stomach. So when we explain these types of things to parents, that this is how the visual system interacts with general development, they could then understand why their child is behind in doing these things, and then they understand why it's important that we do these activities with the children at home every day. It is very, very important that you emphasize to the parents, or if you are a parent, that you understand that it is your responsibility. It is the parent's responsibility to perform these activities and these games with the child at home because the parents are there so many more hours with the child as compared to the doctor or the teacher. Too many times we find parents, they expect the teacher for the visually impaired to do all of this for the child, but the teacher for the visually impaired isn't with that child nearly as much as the parent. And again, by performing these activities, the child is going to make progress in each of these different areas. How do we know that? It's because we see this every day. Every day at work we see this. And Sue and her child development staff at Braille, all the other teachers for the visually impaired who provide visual stimulation, they see it as well. Now, after we have done the history, we want to find out, are there any other types of major medical problems? A lot of these kids may have seizures, and these seizures are something that we're often very concerned with. If a child has seizures that are not under control, these seizures may affect how a child remembers how to perform what they have learned to do. In other words, they may not remember how to reach for something that they see. They may not remember how to align their two eyes straight because the seizures often disrupt the activity in the brain and these kids often cannot remember these things. 
So we do recommend that those kids who do have seizures are evaluated by a neurologist and different medications are going to be evaluated to see which reduces those seizures most beneficially. We also recommend that if the child that you're working with has seizures, we do not want you to use any strobe lights because strobe lights that are rapidly flashing, you know, like at a disco, those are things that can cause a seizure. So we do not recommend the use of strobe lights at home. We also caution parents if the child has seizures to not use certain types of video games. In the past, there was a popular video game called Pokemon. And in this animated cartoon, sometimes there were explosions or different rapidly flashing lights. And they would flash so quickly that it would often cause children to have seizures. So we don't want to use those types of toys during that visual stimulation. Now, what the next thing we do as doctors is we basically are just going to look at the child. What does a child look like? Does a child look alert or does a child look very, very tired? Does a child seem to be interested in looking with the eyes? How do you know that? Are the eyes open? Or do the eyes always roll up into the skull and you only see the whites of the eye? Do you see a child who's always covering one eye with a fist? Or do you see a child who's winking one eye? You want to look at these particular types of behaviors because it immediately gives you an idea as to whether or not does this child have vision and does this child try to use vision? If we ever see a situation where a child is covering one eye, one of the things that we're wondering is, does this child see double vision? Double vision is one of the more common things that a newborn child may suffer from. The causes of double vision is most often because the alignment of the two eyes are not perfectly straight. And this is very, very common because it usually is not until it is not until the age of 12 months that a child could fully straighten both eyes. So in other words, if you see a three-month-old and sometimes the eyes are going crossed or sometimes the eyes are drifting outward, those are things that are very common that we will see and it's okay to explain to parents that this is something that is quite common during the first year and we would want a doctor to evaluate that. When a child does have that type of misalignment of the eyes, we could recommend exercises to help the child to learn to straighten both eyes. And we also could prescribe glasses. Believe it or not, we will prescribe glasses on children as young as one week of age. There are specialized eyeglass frames that we have that could fit the face and the nose of a child very, very comfortably. And with these particular types of glasses, we also will put a special type of elastic band so that the glasses don't slide down. And another thing that we do is that we curve the lenses, a very special curvature, so that if a child is always lying on her back, that the glasses don't start pushing up against the eyelashes. 
because many newborn children have very, very long eyelashes. Another thing that we're looking at when we see the child is we also are going to look at the head posture. Now, some kids will often tilt their head towards their right shoulder. Other kids will tilt their head towards their left shoulder. Other kids will turn their head towards their left or turn their head towards their right. And other kids will tilt their head forward or backwards. And you just want to make a notation of what it is that you see. Many times these changes in the head posture, this is the way that the child could eliminate seeing double vision. In general, a head turn to the right or the left is often an indication that the alignment of the eyes is reduced or that the child sees better with one eye versus the other. If the child tilts the head towards the left shoulder or tilts the head towards the right shoulder, that often means that one eye is pointing higher than the other eye. And then if one head, excuse me, if the head tilts forward or backwards, that often indicates that the child may suffer from double vision when they look in the opposite direction. So what I mean by that is if a child always tilts the head forward with the chin almost touching the chest, this child prefers to move the eyes up to see things. Now, if we tilt that child's head backwards or the chin upward and we look at the alignment of the eyes, we may notice that the alignment of the eyes in that position is where the eyes are very misaligned and the child is seeing double vision. So overall, when we identify these things very early in life, you know, within one to two weeks, we could begin intervention by using prism glasses and different types of exercises to help the child to begin to learn to use the eye muscles better. Why is it so important that we do it so early? You know, why don't we wait till the child is three years old or five years old? Well, the reason is that if we do not implement intervention early, the brain begins to shut off those regions that correspond to that type of vision. For example, one of the things is that if a child suffers from double vision, the brain will shut off the vision of one eye, and the vision of that eye that has just been turned off will become blurrier and blurrier. This is something that is called amblyopia. And if a child has amblyopia, it is very difficult to correct the child's vision if we do not perform the treatment before the age of five years. And the type of treatment that we do is that we end up patching the better eye and forcing the child to use that weaker eye. So if we identify that the child has this problem at the age of one month of age, amblyopia will not develop, and the amount of work that has to be done is much less, so the prognosis is much, much better. Now, after we looked at the position of the head, we then evaluate, can the child keep his or her eyes steady? Some kids will have the nystagmus that I talked about. 
Nystagmus might be an indication of optic nerve hypoplasia or other diseases to the eye, but it's also possible that a child may just have what is called congenital nystagmus, where the eyes just shake. It is possible for a child to have nystagmus, where the eyes shake vigorously, and that child may have 20-20 eyesight. But there's other cases where a child has nystagmus, and that nystagmus is indicative that there's another eye disease, and these children might have 2200 vision. So when we observe for nystagmus, it gives us an indication of whether or not there might be other types of eye diseases there. We then want to evaluate whether or not that the neurological reflexes are normal. One thing that we could do with newborn children is that we can tap the bridge of their nose with our finger and you'll notice that they will close both eyes. That is a normal neurological reflex. We could also take our hand or a chart and move it closely to the child's eyes and you'll notice that they will blink their eyes in a protective blink reflex. That again is another indication that the neurological system is looking good. But if you see that the child doesn't blink the eyes when you bring something very close to their eyes, or that they don't blink their eyes when you tap the bridge of their nose, this might be an indication of a neurological problem. And these kids may need to be evaluated by a neurologist as well. Other neurological tests that we do is that we also will encourage a child to follow a moving object. One thing that we use in the clinic is a black and white striped drum. This almost looks like a trash can with black and white stripes. And we could rotate the drum, and the child's eyes will reflexively, automatically follow these stripes. This tells us if the neurological system is functioning or not, and we could determine whether the child could follow a moving object or if the child is not able to follow it. If a child is not able to follow that moving drum, it may mean that there's a problem within the brain stem and there's a problem with some of the different cranial nerves. In these cases, we could then have them be seen by a neurologist and we could identify what we would need to do. In those cases, they may need a prism lens to help them so that they don't see double vision. The next thing that we do is we then look at the alignment of the two eyes. Are the eyes aligned straight? Again, many newborn children, they do not have straight eyes, but most of them do. If we see that there's a severe misalignment of the eyes, we again may prescribe glasses. We might put prisms in the glasses, and we then begin to recommend exercises. Now you might say, what are some of these kinds of exercises that might be performed? Let's say, for example, that there's a baby and the baby's left eye is crossed severely towards the nose. Well, one of the things that we'll do is we could just simply ask parents, well, when you're going to feed the child, bring the baby's bottle from the child's left side. And that will encourage the child to move the left eye towards the left so it won't be buried in towards the nose. If you're going to position the child in his or her crib, position the child in the crib so that when you come through the doorway towards the child's crib, 
you will be coming towards a child from the left side. We will also recommend that we're going to put toys and maybe colorful balloons or things on the child's left side. So these are things that could be very fun and just part of your daily routine, but it will make it much easier for that child to learn to use the left eye and to straighten the left eye. We then measure the child's peripheral vision. There are some diseases, such as retinopathy of prematurity that we talked about, that these kids may not have peripheral vision. For these kids, we have to teach them how to move their eyes and head to scan so that they don't trip over things when they walk. We're going to also evaluate the child's sensitivity to glare and bright light. We're going to evaluate how does the child see under dim lighting. You know, some of the kids who cry when you turn off the lights at night, it's often because they can't see well at night. Children with retinopathy of prematurity and glaucoma often have night blindness. Lieber's congenital amaurosis and retinitis pigmentosa, they often have night blindness. So when you turn off the lights, they are so frightened because suddenly they went blind. So we want to evaluate what is their ability to see at night, how well do they adapt to glare, and if they're bothered by glare, we might use glasses with lenses called transitions that automatically turn dark when they're outdoors. If they have poor night vision, we'll leave on a small night light in the room so that it never goes completely dark. Then we measure the child's clarity of sight. One of the tests we do for this is called the Teller Acuity Cards. And this is a card that's about three feet long by one foot tall. And when you look at the card, it is painted gray. But there's one region of it that will have black and white stripes. So the first card has the largest black and white stripes. And you show the card to the child, and the child will reflexively look at the stripes. You get the next card. Now this next card has slightly smaller stripes. And you could position the stripes in a different location and you show it to them, and you look to see, does the child locate those stripes? And if the child does look at those stripes, then those children are then able to see that. So we continue to go until the child is no longer able to see those stripes. And at that point, we can measure the child's visual acuity. Once we identify the child's visual acuity, we are then able to determine if this child is classified as being legally blind. And we make it very, very clear to the parents that a child could be classified as being legally blind and still have a high degree of functional vision. Legally blind does not mean that they're totally blind. But the importance of being identified as being legally blind it means that these child could be eligible for additional services and benefits. If the family has low income, for example, and the child is legally blind, there's a very good chance that that child may qualify for supplemental security income from Social Security. And this could be as much as $900 for that child a month. So the parents could have the money to get the child the things that he or she needs. If a child is identified as being legally blind, 
immediately the school districts will take charge and they will know that this is a child that they want to follow and provide their services to. So there's many, many other types of programs that are available if the child is legally blind. Now, another thing that we will do is then we perform what is called the refraction. And this is, how do we know if a child will benefit from glasses or not? Well, you know, the anatomy of the eye is such that light rays travel into the eye and they focus on the retina. And the retina, as we stated earlier, it's the tissue that lines the inside of the eyeball. Now, we have an instrument that shines a beam of light into the eye. And if we then notice that that light is shining and focus blurred on the retina, we then know that that child sees very blurred. So we then put our lenses in front of the child's eyes until that light is focused very sharply. And at that point, we know exactly what is the best glasses prescription for that child to give the child the best clarity of sight. So this is something that is very, very easy for optometrists and ophthalmologists who specialize in low vision to do, and that's just how we're able to prescribe these kinds of visual aids. When kids start to get a bit older, we might prescribe visual aids that might even have a telescope in the glasses. We have magnifiers. We have video magnifiers. We have computer software. There are just hundreds and hundreds of different types of visual aids that are available. And what is very, very good is that these types of visual aids are available to children through Medicaid. If a child has Medicaid insurance, the Medicaid in California, which is called Medi-Cal, will provide these devices for the child at no cost. So in other words, kids with low vision could get exams, glasses, low vision aids, all at no charge. For kids who do not have that type of insurance, we also see that the school districts often will have many of these types of visual aids that they will provide for the child. And we also have other programs. At the Center for the Partial Side, we have scholarships, and we have foundations that will pay for all of these types of devices for the kids. So once we complete that functional vision assessment, we then will write a very detailed report that describes what the child is able to see along with our treatment recommendations, and then we will show the parents and the teachers how to do these kinds of activities. So all in all, you could see that this particular type of functional vision assessment, it measures what vision the child has. We could tell the parents, use blue and white because those are the colors your child sees the best. We could tell the parents what distance and which visual field to present the toys. We could prescribe them the glasses that they need. And with all of these kinds of devices, it's going to enhance how the child uses vision to stimulate the development of the visual centers of the brain. And we usually find that by approximately four years, four years, the child will really maximize and develop that higher use of vision. So we have about five to ten minutes, and I'm going to ask you to unmute your phone 
if you have any questions for Sue or myself. So you can unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you can announce your name if you like, or just go ahead and ask questions. So does anybody have any questions out there? Uh, Sue, do you have any questions? No, that was great, Dr. Bill. I learned, I was writing some notes down. I got some great um, new, um, I, I attended new information and great perspective. So thank you so much for that lecture. Yes, and as far as, you know, places that do perform these kinds of functional mm-hmm. low vision examinations for children, there are not a lot of places, unfortunately. We, we hope mm-hmm. that there are more. Uh, we have a training program where we have low-vision residents and low-vision interns who are learning to do this. And so as a result, we hope that there will be more places throughout the United States that do do this. But if you do need a referral, you could send me an email, and my email is drbillfoundation, D-R-B-I-L-L foundation at gmail.com, and I will find you. Uh, agency that provides this type of evaluation in your area. Also, it's also very good to know that teachers for the visually impaired also do perform a educational functional low vision assessment. Mm-hmm. So they evaluate how well the child is able to use vision, see colors, peripheral vision and such, but they usually do not measure the need for glasses or they do not diagnose eye disease. But when kids are old enough to receive those services from a teacher for the vision impaired, they also get this information. Does anybody have any other comments or any questions or any other remarks you would like to share? Uh, Hi there, Dr. Bill. This is uh, Paul Lazazera. I have a question for you. Yes, thank you, Paul. Um, It may be a silly question, but uh, I was wondering... Have you ever seen any folks who have double vision yet uh, only have one eye? Oh, that's a great question, Paul. You know, that <laughs> is a great, great question. And the answer to that is yes. And the reason that I remember this is because when I was a student in optometry school, this person had only one eye, and he, he complained of double vision. And I went into my staff doctor and I said, you know, we got a really strange patient here. This guy, he's trying to tell me that he has seen double vision, but he only has one eye. I said, I think this guy is crazy. And my staff doctor says, are you sure? Maybe you're the crazy one. And he says, go and examine this patient very carefully. And when I did evaluate that patient, I noticed that this person had a cataract in that one and only seen eye. Mm. So when the information of light entered the eye, it hit the cataract and it split into two images. So in this particular Mm. case for this gentleman, we then did a test and we put on what are called pinhole glasses. These are a, a black piece of plastic with a bunch of very tiny holes in it. And it would force him to look through one hole, and it eliminated the double vision. So we knew that that cataract did, in fact, cause that kind of double vision. We also could see that if a person was in an injury, car accident, and the front of the eye cornea has a scar. So in these types of cases, there could be a cataract surgery with artificial lens implant, or the cornea could be transplanted 
and it can eliminate that kind of double vision. But that's a great question. Do you know somebody who has double vision with one eye? Well, that's what I'm wondering. I, I don't know. After you were talking about um, folks using one hand to cover an eye, I noticed that he does that, uh, but he only has one eye, so it just made me think. Yes, you know, it, it's definitely possible. The other thing is if a person has had one eye removed, does this child have a prosthetic eye or adult have a prosthetic eye, yes, artificial he does. eye? You he know, does, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes those you know, need polishing or they don't fit quite perfect and it's a little bit uncomfortable. And a lot of these kids, they feel more comfortable when they press on that prosthetic eye. So it might be a good idea for having that child to be seen by uh, the the oculist who made that prosthesis. It might need a little bit of buffing or such. Okay, definitely. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, thank you for the question. Does anybody else have a question? Okay, I know that all of you want to get back to find out if the Dodgers won tonight, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. So, Sue, you want That's to tell right. us yeah. what we have mm-hmm. in store for next month? Sure. And, I, and Dr. Lou, I just want to take a moment to thank you for and, and the Center for the Parsley Society for all you do for families and for your patients and all the good work that we've seen here over the years. So we just want to thank you, take this moment to thank you for that and and uh, helping us understand this developmental process, you know, developmental vision, and how important it is that we we um, recognize functional vision as as part of the entire child's needs and such. Well, you're very, very welcome. You're very, very welcome. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, one yeah. of the things that we could do for all of you in attendance, uh, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, promoting a new uh, a service, and we'll have some other of these handouts that I talked about that we can make them available for you. So when we have all that ready, we'll let all of you know about how to decorate the home, 99-cent toys, and all the activities. We'll have that for you soon. So, Sue, what do we have next month? All right. Next month, this will be exciting, and we have a treat. Um, We're going to be talking about nystagmus, what is nystagmus, and what are current treatment options. And Dr. Zillow's special guest will be Dr. Sherwin Eisenberg from the Zillow Stein Eye Institute at UCLA. That's a place dear to your heart, huh, Dr. Bill? <laughs> yes, it, is. So. it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be looking forward to that, and that is November the 10th, um, Tuesday, November the 10th, and we'll meet back here at 7.30 p.m. Well, thank you very much, and I'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Joe Yerka from Airs mm-hmm. LA and uh, encourage if you want to listen to this again or share it with others, uh, you could simply go to www.brailleinstitute.org and also at www.airsla, that's A-I-R-S-L-A.org. So we again thank you for participating tonight, and we'll see you all again next month. Good night, everybody.